today, what I want to do is take some material from this book by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. I have said that probably the two most significant books that I think that have come out this year that I think Christians should read, one is Rod Dreyer's book. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, you know, Live Not By Lies. But probably an even more approachable book, a very readable book, is this one by Dr. Lutzer, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. Uh, First of all, Dr. Lutzer was in studio with me about a week or two ago. I'd also interviewed him by phone. This last week was at the National Religious Broadcasters, and I was doing some television interview. And as I walk out, there's Dr. Lutzer coming in to do a TV interview on his book. And uh, to show you the influence this book is having, I'm going to the dentist the other day. And you don't think you're going to be talking about this at a dentist's office. But my dentist comes in, Dr. Nolly comes in and says, I'm reading this book by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. I said, uh, we will not be silenced. He said, yes. I said, well, actually, I'm going to be interviewing him next Thursday. He said, well, this is really a good book, and it's uh, very helpful. And if you don't need that, the uh, cover says, Dr. David Jeremiah says, if I could, I would put this book in the hands of every Christian in America. You with me? So we're going to kind of do just kind of a short interview type format where I'm going to take some of the things that I've learned from the book and a few things I've learned from him and share that with you. Everybody ready? And first of all, even before we get into the book, some of you might say, okay, what's the framework I need to have to understand this? And so I thought I'd add this slide. It's not in the book, but it's kind of like, okay, why do we look at what's going on in the culture? Well, in the Old Testament, it talks about the fact that the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. One of the various tribes there, and I think it's such a great illustration because I think we need to also understand our times with knowledge of what we should do. And there seem to be some things coming down the pike. Um, Scott sort of got into that today, didn't he, a little bit, in terms of just the disruption taking place. And so that is certainly the case. And then we sort of need to plan for the future. And I gave you a couple of verses from the Old Testament there, Isaiah 32, 8. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Or, of course, Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We can have plans, but we, of course, need to submit them to the Lord. So there are a number of chapters in the book, and you can see that in your handout, but I'm going to spend a little bit extra time on the first chapter because he really wants to try to answer the question, how did we get to where we are? And this is helpful. First of all, most of us in this class are older, so we have seen the remarkable changes in America. But for the younger generation, they think it's always been like this. So this is helpful not only for us to figure out how we got here, but also to give us a chance to explain to the younger generation, it hasn't always been like this. And he starts out by saying the secular left does not believe that America can be fixed. They say it must be destroyed. And he talks about the fact that there is such a push right now from the media and the academy in almost every sphere of our culture uh, to push this kind of vision. And if you don't buy into that, you're going to be vilified, you're going to be bullied, you're going to be shamed until you kind of admit the mistakes of the past and embrace their hope for the future. So I'm using some of his phraseology there. And he says, because of this, it's almost become difficult to have a conversation about this. You know, there are such polarization now. You make a statement, even kind of an obvious statement on Twitter or Facebook, and you know what kind of the response is from all sorts of uh, um, Internet hornets out there. I've, I've 
They're not called hornets, but I call them that because it feels like that sometimes. It gets stung all at once. And so, again, he points out that it is really difficult sometimes to even have an honest conversation. One of our professors at Dallas Theological Seminary that then went on to Gordon Conwell and uh, Gordon Seminary was Dr. Haddon Robinson. And um, Erwin Lutzer quotes from him because Haddon Robinson used to use a phrase. He said, you know, in the past... American Christians had the home field advantage. I'm going to use kind of a football analogy for a minute. Because most of the crowd was either in our side or else they were sort of indifferent to us. But all that has changed because now we play the game on enemy turf. A minority still on our side, not denying that, but the wider culture is the one shouting at us right now while he says the elitists in the skybox are cheering them on. And so it's a very different kind of world. When I talk about the 1950s, you know, you could certainly go out into the culture and give a biblical point of view. You could give a Christian point of view. You could talk about the belief that there are certain moral absolutes. And you'd have most people either agree. There'd be a few that would disagree, but not much. Now, there are just things that you would think would be just kind of straightforward statements Statements even from biology that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and those kinds of things. And I mean, you can get yourself in trouble just actually making some of those kinds of statements. And so he says, you know, but praise be to God, we're still on the playing field. And nothing else, we're calling a few more people out of off the bench to come and join us uh, to address this issue. So then he has some sections in this first chapter. And the first of what is he talks about what he calls cultural Marxism's growing shadow. What is cultural Marxism? Well, Karl Marx in classical Marxism said that there would be a revolt between the bourgeois and the proletariat, between the working class and the capitalists. But that really never panned out very much. And so the cultural Marxists began to say, really, the conflict should be between race, gender, sexual orientation. And so in some respects... People with a cultural Marxist idea have made very significant inroads into the media, into the universities, into the popular culture, into social media, and a variety of others. And so you've seen this gradual transformation of the culture. He also talks about the fact that there seems to be such an emphasis on the destruction of the nuclear family because sometimes that stands in the way of changes. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But even Marx argued that, you know, there was a problem with religion. Religion is the opiate of the people. It was invented to just have people dominate. Uh, the source of a lot of oppression was the belief in God and the Bible and all the rest. And so today you have people talking about oppression. And the oppression, not so much focus on class, although they still have the classical Marxist idea, but instead race, gender, sexual orientation. Then he goes on to say that all of that has happened and actually happened quickly because of the media. Because the media not only reflects the culture, but now is directing the culture, is his argument. Again, some of you that are older, when I speak to young people, they don't know what I'm talking about. But if you talk about, um, I don't know, um, Walter Cronkite, you think when he was broadcasting, I mean, I kind of knew where he stood politically, but it was hard to really tell because, you know, there was an attempt to try to play it down the middle, uh, even as recently as Ted Koppel, same kinds of thing. Is anybody saying that about the media today? I mean, it definitely has an agenda. 
So that's one thing. Then he also quotes from uh, one of these books that talks about the fact that even if you hold to just, say, biblical values about marriage, uh, you can, according to some of these activists, be forced into what they call cultural irrelevance. And so that's where Dr. Lutzer, who has the longest serving pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, said, you know, our biggest problem is sometimes we have a silent church. And he said, you know, when you speak out, there are consequences. One of the examples, he says, is that when he published a book just on, you know, the idea of same-sex marriage and giving a critique of same-sex marriage, he talks about this phone call to the church saying, you're on the losing side. We can't even believe that as a pastor you would even speak out on something like marriage. What? You know, um, it's kind of like you're out of your lane. You shouldn't even do so. And then uh, some of these activists then on the steps of Moody Church took his book and tore it up, you know, with the cameras rolling. Um, you can imagine, we had, I guess we did have some protests out here, but those weren't anything like what it would be like to have protesters right out here attacking Pastor Graham or other people. And so he recognizes that, you know, if you take a stand, even on something as simple as a biblical view of marriage, there are consequences to it. So let's, if we can, work through some of the chapters. Um, and I'll go through these relatively quickly because we can all go off and get some lunch. But the first point he makes in chapter two is the idea to rewrite the past that gives us the ability to control the future. And he starts out with the destruction of the monuments. Remember this? You know, Eugene, remember this? You know, Eugene and I talking about this. You know, first it was the Confederate monuments. But very quickly after that, all sorts of other things are getting torn down as well. People thought, well, it's just the Confederate moderate uh, monuments. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, no, these they are in some cases slaves, monuments of slaves being pulled down and things like that. And presidents and all sorts of other individuals. And he says, you know, in some respects, that was just trying to attack the history. If you think about the kinds of textbooks that developed in the 20th century, uh, probably the more recent one that many people would be familiar with would be the book by Howard Zinn, a Marxist who wrote A People's History of the United States, in which he points out all the errors in American history and all of the dark chapters. And after students go through some of that textbook or ones that have been influenced by it, they come to hate America rather than believe that America is an exceptional nation. Then more recently, we've had the 1619 Project put together by the New York Times, arguing that America's history didn't start in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, didn't even start in 1620 with the Pilgrims, but it started in 1619 when a few slaves stepped off a ship in Jamestown, Virginia. And so, again, there's not only been an attack, as he points out, just on American history, there's really been an attack on Western civilization. And so this is one of the issues he talks about very early on, and the need for us as parents and grandparents to pass on some of the history that isn't being taught in the schools today. Then his third chapter talks about using diversity to divide and destroy. I think we've seen some of this, haven't we, in our culture. And one of the people he quotes is Saul Alinsky, who used to live in Chicago, so he probably knew him pretty well. But Rules for Radicals was very influential because out of the teaching of Saul Alinsky, he developed various community organizers. 
As a matter of fact, we know some community organizers as well. And he said, you know, the goal here is not to solve problems, it's to use problems. Never let a crisis go to waste, right? Uh, one of his quotes is, an organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent. And so um, uh, he also even had a phrase there that uh, his goal is to rub raw the sores of discontent. Uh, which just illustrates again, the goal there was not unity, the goal was diversity. Matter of fact, um, Dr. Lutzer reminded me when we were doing the interview that if you look at the introduction in the book, Rules for Radicals, uh, Saul Alinsky dedicated it to Lucifer, the first radical who rebelled against the establishment. So you can kind of see this whole idea of diversity. And of course today we hear a lot about social justice. And there's a very good uh, uh, PragerU video that makes a very good, clear difference between biblical justice, which we should be for, and what has now come to be called social justice. Because, again, biblical justice should be equality under the law, and we should be inclined to actually argue for justice, but we don't have to apply justice to values that are sinful or evil, he says. And, of course, the current idea is this idea of critical race theory. Uh, which is developed out of what's called the Frankfurt School in Germany. Many of those individuals in Frankfurt, Germany, because of the Nazis, escaped to America and established this teaching of critical theory at Columbia School of Education, now Columbia University. And so critical race theory was the idea of taking critical theory and applying it to race. Heather McDonald, who I've had on the program, sometimes talks about students specializing in this, play the race card incessantly against their students and professors, leading to an atmosphere of nervous self-censorship. One other aspect of that is what's called intersectionality. Didn't know you're going to get all these technical terms here, but intersectionality is a recognizing that some of these ideas of oppression and victimhood overlap. In other words, if you're a black you are being a victim. If you're a black woman, you get kind of two uh, qualifications for victimhood. And if you're a black woman, lesbian, three. And so after a while, you sort of mount up your victimology, but then all of us will cooperate together to overthrow the existing structure. And again, that's where we see such division in America today. A different uh, chapter is where he talks about freedom of speech for me, but not for thee. And reminds us that uh, on college campuses, there used to be such an emphasis on free speech. Uh, it talks about in the University of California at Berkeley. When I was growing up, uh, we used to go to a very liberal church in Berkeley. But across the street, they were having what was called the free speech movement. Mario Savio and others talking about we want to have a free speech platform. It even reminds us when he was and his wife were living in Skokie, Illinois, uh, there was a march that the National Socialist Party wanted to have. And even though there were victims of the Holocaust living there, uh, groups like the ACLU defended their right to march, even if we might disagree. And that used to be what we found on college campuses. When Pro Ministries began years ago, we would speak on college campuses, and I would have professors sometimes say, you know, I've invited Mr. Anderson in here in the Christian Update Forum, and you've heard my view, and I thought it would be fair to let you hear a different view. Is that happening on college campuses today? Not really. Uh, because instead, the argument is, is that you don't have a right and should not be given a right to free speech. Herbert Marcuse, who is a cultural Marxist, said tolerance 
right now, he said, was extended to policies and conditions and modes of behavior which should not be tolerated because they are impeding, if not destroying, the chances of creation and existence without fear and misery. Now, he said that years ago in the 1960s and 70s, but here's a more recent quote from Jeffrey Tucker saying, if you oppose policies like Social Security or Obamacare, you should be denied the right of freedom of speech and assembly. If you have the wrong views, you have no rights. Fortunately, we still have a Constitution and at least a majority of Supreme Court justices that still believe in the First Amendment, but you can see kind of the mindset that we're going to be entering into. Another thing he talks about in one of the other chapters is this idea of propaganda, or what he calls sell it as a noble cause. And I got a picture here of a book that gets quoted a lot. I don't think George Orwell had any idea that when he, in 1948, wrote a book called 1984, he just flipped the numbers there, uh, predicted a time in which you could have a totalitarian regime, a ministry of truth that determines what is right and what is wrong. Um, He uses the idea that some of the phrases in this Oceana were war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. But if you've ever heard phrases like newspeak, doublethink, thought police, Big Bay, a Big Brother. These are all words that have entered our vocabulary from 1984. And in some respects, uh, some people have said 1984 was prophetic. It's just that he had the date wrong. And so he also then, Dr. Lutzer, talks about the fact that uh, if you look at the issue of pro- propaganda, Edmund Bernays' famous book on propaganda talked about how we are manipulated oftentimes by propaganda. He says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. And he goes on to say that we're governed, our minds molded, our tastes form, our ideas suggested largely by men who we've never heard of. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces. And one of the examples he uses in the book has nothing to do with politics, but had everything to do with cigarettes. Think about this. By the 1940s, there were a lot of people that were starting to think, you know, cigarettes just might be bad for your health. By the time you got to the 1950s, there were more and more people that had some hesitation about whether they would smoke. And so he uses the example about how they tried to make it sophisticated, cool, and all the rest to encourage people to buy cigarettes. And then, of course, they use the same kind of marketing ideas to help the president in 1960 win an election. Of course, since then, we've had all sorts of attempts uh, to use these kind of techniques, which I think call for us as believers. We're supposed to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But I think we need to develop a great deal of discernment. And I thought it was interesting because he talks about some of the aspects of propaganda appealing to a higher good using slogans to mask evil. Have you seen that before? Pro-choice, masking the idea of abortion, what it might be. Preach noble goals and hide your end game. And then he quotes from another book by William Sargent, A Battle for the Mind, The Physiology of Conversion and Brainwashing. William Sargent talks about there are some times in society in which we're most susceptible to propaganda. One of those times is during wartime. What's the other one? during a severe epidemic or a pandemic. You know, think about how, in some respects, you could actually move people dramatically because of fear of dying, and so that is the case. 
And then he also goes on, since, of course, he spends a little bit of time talking about this idea of LGBTQ, that um, when you think about the, the success of propaganda, probably the most successful in the sexual revolution. Now, during the 1960s, you can think of um, everything from uh, Playboy magazine and uh, those kinds of things. But when you talk about how is it in a remarkably short period of time did a handful, literally a handful of people advocating homosexuality change the whole direction of this country? And a lot of it goes back to this book by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. Now, they'd written an earlier article, but in the 1980s, when they wrote the article, the book came out in the 1990s, they were concerned about the fact that the homosexual movement really had a very bad image. It had poor branding in the American culture, because you had had everything from the issue of AIDS to the issue of gay pride parades. And there were a lot of Americans that were not exactly thinking in a positive way towards homosexuality. So they began to set forth, what can we do, given the fact that we're a very small minority in the American culture, change the perception that people have about homosexuality? One of the ideas is to sell it as a civil right. Let's take some of the rhetoric that was used in the civil rights movement in the 1960s uh, to overthrow Jim Crow laws and to get the passage of, uh, of all sorts of various pieces of legislation in 1964 and 1965, civil rights legislation, sell it as love and compassion, and then use language to kind of blur the distinctions. And if you look at some of the facts and figures, we went from a time in the early 1990s, where a vast majority of Americans did not agree with same-sex marriage, uh, to the vast majority of Americans now agree with same-sex marriage, and in a relatively short period of time, changed the public perception, uh, you know, perception, I should say, of the whole issue of homosexuality. I won't spend a lot of time on this because, you know, nothing else that gets into things that are very disturbing, but he does have a whole chapter on the sexualization of children and says, you know, parents, and he says, I include most Christian parents, no longer raise their children, rather culture does, most significantly through the Internet. And one of the people he quotes is Peter Hitchens, who actually wrote this book called The Rage Against God, in which he noticed as a correspondent living in Moscow, the similar pattern that was used by Nazi Germany and by Russian communists. And one of the lines that he has in the book is, any ideological or revolutionary state must always alienate the young from their pre-revolutionary parents if it hopes to survive in the future. And so again, just a reminder of some of that. Real quickly, also, he has a chapter on the subject of capitalism and socialism. We've talked about that before, but he says one of the reasons why the younger you are, the more likely you are to accept socialism, he says, is due to the four-letter word free. Free college, free health care, free retirement income, a guaranteed job, and a decent living, right? But I think some of you smiling and shaking your head right now know that nothing's really free. Somebody has to pay for that. And yet, interestingly enough, because of the pandemic and the lockdown, we've had government and now sending checks out. And it was interesting that during the last presidential campaign, Andrew Yang talked about guaranteed income, a universal guaranteed income that we would send checks to everybody every single month. 
Andrew Yang then Yang ran for the mayorship of New York, lost, but still his ideas are out there. And so we spent, you know, if nothing else, trillions of dollars uh, bailing out businesses and giving checks to uh, millions of newly unemployed workers. And one of the things we've been talking about right now is, you know, a couple of months ago, there was an estimate that we would create a million new jobs in April, but we only created 266,000 jobs. And so people said, well, why is that? Well, when you get paid more to stay home than to work, um, and some people did some calculations saying that unless you're getting about $16 an hour, you would be better staying home than going to work. And so you have even more kind of an emphasis on this idea of socialism. He spent some time, of course, reminding us that if you look at a case study for democratic socialism, it hasn't gone very well. Uh, Venezuela, perfect example. I saw something recently where it looked at the, all the oil reserves around the world. Number one was Venezuela. Number two was Saudi Arabia. One of the wealthiest nations in the world in terms of oil reserves, and yet there are people um, actually digging through the garbage to feed themselves. Um, I had a secretary that worked at Probe, and her husband actually worked in the oil industry in Venezuela decades ago, in which it was just booming and growing, but then Hugo Chavez took over, applied socialist ideas, and even though it's sitting on this enormous amount of potential wealth, you can see what has happened in Venezuela. Also address the issues of Sweden, because a lot of times people say, well, Venezuela is a bad example. Sweden is a socialist country, and he quotes some of the same people I have in my commentaries, in which there was a Swedish historian saying, first of all, we're not socialist. There was a time when we flirted with it and it was a disaster. More importantly, uh, we do not have all the regulations that you have. Matter of fact, we probably have a freer capitalist economy in Sweden than you do in the United States. Yes, we have a very large welfare state, but certainly we have a very free capitalist economy there. And, of course, also takes on, uh, does the Bible teach socialism? Because you see that in um, Acts chapter 4, it says that the uh, believers in Jerusalem held things in common. But then if you go to Acts chapter 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira. Even Peter says, was this not yours before you sold it? Was it not yours after you sold it? Uh, the condemnation is not that they weren't socialists. The condemnation is that they lied to the Holy Spirit. But anyway, that's another one of those chapters. A couple more real quickly. He talks about the idea of vilification. Uh, brings us back to Saul Alinsky. Another quote in Saul Alinsky's book. Pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, polarize it. And we've seen more and more public shaming, the cancel culture, uh, the denunciation, public square, vilification on campus and all the rest. And so the final chapter is really talking about, okay, how do we as Christians respond? Well, it takes this to the book of Revelation and the uh, church in Sardis. And that's where Jesus, speaking to one of the seven churches there, says to Sardis, wake up, strengthen what remains. And he says, look, we've got to understand there are certain aspects of our culture which we can embrace. But I think any godly man or woman, any Christian, also has to recognize there are some things that we need to oppose. And so really our ability to discern what we can and cannot embrace is going to be actually really important to the continuation of this witness of the church in the 21st century. 
And he tells the story that um, when he and his wife, actually he and Rebecca, went a number of years ago to visit all the seven churches in the book of Revelation, when they went to Sardis, you of course have the ruins there, but next to it were the ruins of this, uh, if you will, prostitution temple, which to be fair was built after the time, but it certainly that kind of idea existed. And he said, if nothing else, the implication is, is that the uh, elders and the members of the church there in Sardis maybe felt fairly comfortable to uh, being and living right next door to a sexually permissive temples and succumb maybe to some of the things even in that culture. And so if nothing else, what we see is Jesus saying, wake up, strengthen what remains. And if that was true to the church in Sardis in the first century, I think it still could apply to us today. So how do we hear the voice of Jesus today? Well, Erwin Lutzer gives us a couple of solutions. First of all, we should be resolved to be gospel-driven in our life and witness. You know, the world really needs to hear the gospel more than ever before. And uh, this week, even as I was speaking, many times we were sharing some of the surveys we've done at Probe and how very little evangelism is taking place, how very few of us are sharing the gospel with others. And so we should be gospel driven. We should be really speaking truth into a culture. We should be light in the midst of darkness. We understand that. Second of all, we should be resolved that we'll not bow to the cultural sexual revolution. Uh, that is surfacing in so many different ways. And sometimes it's easy to say, you know, that's not my fight. I'm just going to ignore that. But I think we need to pass on to our children, our grandchildren, our sphere of influence, biblical views about that as well. And then also, Dr. Lutzer kind of reminds us that um, if the culture is coming our direction, sometimes we're going to face persecution. Not maybe the persecution that believers in North Korea are facing, not the persecution that believers in China are facing, not the persecution that believers in Muslim countries are facing. So that's persecution with a capital P. I think we're going to face some persecution, maybe with a small P. And that's the case. And be resolved to love Jesus passionately and suffer well for his name. He says we must have the courage to both engage the culture to be salt and light, and also to stand against it when it actually teaches things that we would disagree. So that's why the title of the book is We Will Not Be Silenced. Um, it is a recognition that still we should be involved in evangelism. Unless you think that Dr. Lutzer is just one of those political activists, uh, I don't know anybody who I've ever been with who, as soon as we get together, usually tells me about somebody he shared the gospel with just the moment before he was there. Usually on the, the taxi uh, cab or in, I guess he probably uses Uber now, I don't know, um, and the people that he's met. So he recognizes how we certainly have a responsibility to share the gospel. Also, he's been a pastor teaching God's word for many years, so he hardly has turned the church into a political action entity. But at the same time, also reminds us that we certainly are going to have a responsibility to be the salt and the light. And if you wanted to learn a little bit more about that, I'd recommend his book. Or if you would like to hear the interview, of course, you can go to pointofview.net and hear it, or you can even go to YouTube and see it and uh, benefit a little bit more. But um, if nothing else, that was our attempt today to get you thinking about the fact that you have a responsibility to be uh, the light in the midst of a very dark world.